The Holy Gospel according to John, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. <clears throat> A little background. To fully appreciate our first reading today from Kings that Deacon Pam read for us just a few minutes ago, in this reading we find Solomon, king of Israel, offering a prayer of dedication as the Ark of the Covenant is finally settled in the inner sanctuary of the newly completed temple in Jerusalem. While this temple was actually the dream of his father, King David, it is King Solomon who actually gets to build it. If you recall, the ark is that vessel which contains the tablets inscribed by God on Mount Horeb when Moses received the Ten Commandments, those commandments that galvanized the relationship between God and the Israelites, I will be your God and you will be my people. As the ark is settled in the temple, the presence of God fills the whole place. Dark smoke is so intense that the priests cannot even offer their worship services. So dense is the smoke. As you know, I adore irony. I think it's funny that the priests could not perform their services because God literally gets in the way of their plans. A fascinating nod to things to come. Anyway... First, Solomon addresses the people gathered for the dedication and reminds them of God's ongoing faithfulness to them. Then he turns to the altar of God and prays. He praises God for God's steadfast love for him and his father and his father's father. He recalls God's promise to keep an heir of David on the throne of Israel. And then his prayer changes. At least in my mind, it changes. 
King Solomon's prayer now takes on a particularly contemplative tone at this point. We hear notes of a new thought, maybe, tantalizing his brain. Again, some irony here that even as King Solomon is is dedicating this magnificent temple, he ponders the reality that God cannot be contained in a temple. Even the highest heavens can't contain you, he says, much less this temple that I've built. Yes, God is present and accessible in the temple, but God is not encountered only in the temple. In other words, to sum it up, you can't put God in a box, even an ornate one with polished stone and columns and vaulted ceilings and stained glass and statues and memorial plaques. You can't put God in a box. Maybe this truth is hitting Solomon for the very first time, even as his outstretched hands dedicate this shiny new temple. And then Solomon expands on this thought in an even more fascinating way. And when foreigners, that is to say non-believers, hear of you, he begs, please listen to them, O God. And even more than that, do whatever they ask you. In this way, Solomon invokes his God to also be the God of the foreign ones, the unbelieving ones, the curious ones, the peculiar ones, the bizarre ones, the seeking ones. What a radical prayer to be prayed by the king of Israel at the dedication of the temple, which was built for the Israelites. Solomon prays to God on behalf of the other because he finally comprehends that his God, the God of Israel, cannot be put in a box. God will accomplish God's will. God will fulfill God's vision. God will establish God's kingdom, not our will or vision or kingdom, even if it means getting in the way of our plans, like what happened that day when the priests could not perform their services because the smoke of God was too thick. The presence of God is profoundly immense. And here, at this moment in his prayer, it hits Solomon that God has just moved in and already the place is too small. And this is offensive to many. Humans are excellent at putting God in boxes that we ourselves construct. And we are offended by the thought that God might be something more than our personal trained pet. It offends us that God won't remain within the lines that we've drawn or the cages that we've built. The Ark of the Covenant isn't the only thing that is getting settled in. At this particular point, students have arrived in Iowa City and are getting settled, and we welcome you. Classes start tomorrow, not only for the university, but also for community schools as well. We all hold our breath, wondering what this academic year will bring. If we learned anything from last year, it's that just when you think you're settled into something, something will come along to shake that up. And if we've learned anything more, it's that God is all about shaking things up, no matter how much we've carefully planned Recall again those priests and their endless preparation for their first service in the great temple, canceled due to, well, an act of God. God cannot 
and will not be contained by doctrine or dogma or even liturgy, which pains me to say as a Lutheran, which is exactly why this reading is so brilliant for us today, because surely some people in the crowd that day were offended by the king's prayer. How dare you pray for people that don't belong here in our temple? But not only does King Solomon pray for the outsider, but he invokes the earliest memory and image as human beings that we have in the Bible, going all the way back to Genesis. And in so doing, he casts a profoundly hopeful vision of kingdom reality. In Genesis, we discover a God who desires relationship with us and encourages us to relate to those around us. Israel's relationship with foreigners suffers from many low points, but here we see King Solomon's prayer pointing us in a different direction. This forces us to consider the Bible as a whole and in what the direction the Bible generally points us to. While certain stories in the Bible depict foreigners, foreigners poorly, something we are all too familiar with also in our modern times, at King Solomon's prompting, we must return to Genesis 1 for a more complete theological vision of the world. In Genesis 1, God creates humankind in God's image. And this insight helps us understand the perspective of King Solomon's prayer. There are no limitations or distinctions within humanity. In the sense that in Genesis, we do not hear about the creation of foreigners and then the creation of Israelites. We don't hear about the creation of black people and then the creation of white people. We don't hear about the creation of poor humans and then the creation of rich humans. We do hear about the creation of male humans and female humans, and I'll come back to that in a sec. The creation of humankind as a whole is in the image of God, not in our own image. In Genesis, we only hear about the creation of humans. This creation describes the world long before the struggles that Israel has with foreigners, and certainly long before the struggles we have between vaccinated and unvaccinated or the struggles between black and white, or the struggles on either side of any issues of sexuality or abortion or women's rights or immigrants' rights, the plight of indigenous nations, the suffering of our planet, and so on. King Solomon's prayer to God for the foreigner helps us to understand God's original intention, that all humanity reflects God. And it is our job to make sure that we always stay focused on that intention. And when this becomes unclear or difficult to see, we must return to this initial description of the world and correct our vision. King Solomon's prayer returns to that original description of God's intention for the creation of humans, all of us, so that we see one another as fellow created humans in all of our diversity, whether friend or foe, foreign or familiar, and yet the offense remains. For some, for many, it's offensive to those who wish to cram God back into the temple, back within the four walls of a church, back into the basement, back inside the closet. Fast forward thousands of years when Jesus preaches the same immensity of the inclusivity of God and some people even some of his own disciples get offended and walk away. This teaching is too difficult, they say. 
Who can possibly accept it, they say, as if their leaving would somehow hinder or inhibit the expansion of the kingdom of God? And so they leave. Let them have their paltry kingdom. God will have God's kingdom. If we consider King Solomon and all of his wisdom and ponder the creation of humanity described in Genesis in its mind-bending simplicity, we discover a radical expression of divinity and humanity that God, existing as traditionally male-engendered father and traditionally male-engendered son and traditionally female-engendered spirit, is certainly non-binary, certainly acquainted with gender fluidity. We remember that God has no skin color, but when God did walk the earth, God's skin certainly was brown, and he certainly was poor and homeless, and certainly understands what it means to stand outside societal norms. We recall that God is simultaneously no gender and all genders, that God is no race but all races, that God is no one specific faith but all faiths, that God is both crucified criminal and king of kings, that God cannot be contained by a category or a box because God is so much bigger than all of these things, no matter how meticulous and thorough our plans, God's presence will fill the universe and accomplish that which God desires. Sometimes when life is upended, we discover a beauty in the unanticipated and unplanned for the fullness of God. Is this offensive? Maybe. I doubt God is much concerned with your offense or mine. Both our reading from Kings and our Gospel from John celebrate the fact that God will accomplish God's will through us or despite us. That the inclusivity of God's kingdom cares not at all about our restrictions or our conditions. That God's presence most assuredly will fill our hearts, this place, and the universe so completely that all of our carefully constructed contracts and constitutions finally mean nothing. And this is Solomon's epiphany today, that his temple, as grand as it is, is little more than stone, that our constitutions and bylaws are little more than pen and paper, that God is contained by none of these things. And when Jesus preaches this, that God is bigger than any of us can possibly imagine or comprehend, that it is not ours to judge the worth and value and beauty of another human being, whether familiar or foreign, and so many are offended. Maybe Jesus smiled a little smugly. Maybe he even whispered under his breath, leave if you must, but that won't stop me. Amen.